personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, my name is Debbie Reynolds. They call me the Data Diva. This is the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss data privacy issues with industry leaders around the world for information that businesses need to know now. I have a special guest on the show today, uh, Ronald Hedges. He is the senior counsel at Denton's law firm. He's also a retired U.S. State uh, States Magistrate Judge for the District of New Jersey. Hello, Ron. Good morning. Thank you for having me on, Deb. Nice to be here. Yeah, this is this is such a fun uh, podcast for me. So. Uh, you and I met as we have a friend in common who's Gail Goderer, who's a lawyer in New York who works on emerging technologies. We've been friends for many years and she invited me to be a part of the New York State Bar Association uh, Technology Committee, of which you are a co-chair. And that's how we met years ago. But since that time, we've done a lot of different collaborations together, and I feel like we've done so many this year, I've lost track almost. <laughs> we have done a lot this year, and we have another one coming up in January on artificial intelligence. We do, we do. So I, I just, I had to write a list of some of the stuff that we've done together, and it's not even a complete list. It's just stuff that I just, I, I knew for sure that we did, and I, I you know, Obviously, we're going to do a lot more. So the cool thing is we end up doing, you and I tend to like or gravitate towards issues related to kind of emerging technology and emerging legal issues. So that's why I think it's so fun to collaborate with you. Because we, you know, like I think you beat me to the punch. I think we're going to do a thing on Metaverse and you'd already done something on that. And this year we did some things on like, voice printing, um, post-quantum cryptography. We recently did one on data literacy uh, for attorneys. And, you know, as prolific as we have been in our joint collaboration, you're even more prolific in other things that you're doing. So I always follow your feed and see places that you're either speaking or things that you're writing. Um, I just want to do a short list of some of the stuff that we did together this year. So we've done, I think we did at least one or two things for the Practicing Law Institute, uh, the American Health Information Management Association, AHIMA, uh, Louisiana Health Information Management Association, LIMA, uh, as I said, the New York State Bar Association, and I think we did Law Line, or we're going to do... <laughs> We're going to do Lawline? We, I don't know. I think we've done Lawline, but this is the one, the Lawline program in AI is what we're doing in January. And we have other PLI events and other events coming up in 2022. We have a lot going on. Hopefully some of them are even going to be in person again. So we'll see what happens with that. Yes, yes. So we do speaking together. We write things together. I think we, we contributed to reports for the New York State Bar Association. I think there was something else you wanted me to collaborate with you on, like an article or something. We'll talk about that after the show. But tell me, what, what drives your passion for, for education and being able to be an advocate for not only technology, but how it intersects with law? 
Well, let me first off start by saying whatever I say today is a personal opinion. It doesn't reflect my firm and I'm not giving anyone legal advice. I'm just trying to inform and educate. But, but to go back to that question of yours, um, I started on the bench in 1986. I can't tell you the first matter I had involving electronic information. Although between 1986 and when I went, when I left in 2007, obviously the world changed in litigation as to lawyers knowing what ESI, electronically stored information, is looking for, producing it, and fighting about it. If it's not produced, or if it's not produced in the right form, or if it's lost, but. To teach, um, I have always been interested in teaching. I taught at Georgetown Law, the first class on electronic discovery. I also taught courses at Seton Hall and at Rutgers on different topics. Uh, one of the fun ones I taught at Rutgers Law was on science fiction in the law. And this I did maybe, oh, in the 1990 or so. And interestingly enough, a couple of the things that we talked about in the class and I had taken science fiction stories and said, how are we gonna deal with this as we move forward was on electronic surveillance. So I've always been involved in that. I still do guest lecturing at different schools. I was at Seton Hall a couple of weeks ago. I'm gonna be there again next week. I've done things with Rutgers and other places. So I've enjoyed teaching and uh, I've just fallen into electronic information, civil and criminal, because when I was on the bench, I dealt with warrants as well as civil cases. And it's an interesting topic. And the other fun thing about it, there's something new every day. And that, I think, is what got me into technology, because there's always a new technology to think about. And it's always something, for me, that's fun because I have to take some things I know and maybe extrapolate them or draw analogies to what we've done before. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I didn't know that background. That's really interesting. That explains a lot uh, about you and your manner. I, I love the fact you're, you speak a lot, but you're a really good listener. So you understand, you listen very well to people. You can communicate really well, then you do it in a way that is inviting. So you people feel brought into the conversation as opposed to being shut out. So, you know, even when you're talking about, you know, ESI, you know, some people just say that to keep moving. You say what, you know, electronic stored information. So you're bringing people into the conversation. And I think that's really important, especially as we're talking to people in all, you know, all walks of life, all kind of levels of understanding of kind of technology and law. I miss doing things in person. Uh, number one, I like to travel. And obviously, we haven't been doing much of that in the last two years or so. Uh, hopefully, things are going to open up again and we're going to be able to do live events. Uh, there are a couple scheduled for next year already, although I had a couple scheduled in December that went virtual or put off just because of, of the pandemic. But I miss to travel on top of everything else. I miss live programs, in-person programs, because you have a dynamic when you can talk to people. And frankly, I walk around a room and ask somebody a question. I can't do that on Zoom, really, or any other platform. And uh, 
frankly, it's sometimes disappointed. I might be speaking to an audience on Zoom of a couple hundred people, and I get one question or two questions in. And I just think that's the nature of the platform and the fact that you're not in front of someone. Right, right. Well, tell me about your interest in privacy. So this is fun for us because we exchange articles with one another all the time. We see something we're like, what? I can't believe that's happening. You know, and we try to, you know, bring it into our conversations or bring it into, you know, the collaborations that we do. I think it's really interesting. So I think you and I do the same thing. So tell, tell me, what is it about privacy that, that got your interest? I do a lot. I do a lot on ESI or electronic information being broader than ESI in the criminal context. And I have had put together for years a compilation of case law and other resources on Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment issues, Sixth Amendment issues, evidence issues, and whatever, discovery issues in the criminal area for electronic information. That Compilation is updated semi-annually, and it's hosted at the Massachusetts Attorney General's office website. So that's available if anyone wants to see it. But that's fascinating to me because we're dealing with whether there's probable cause to get a warrant. That raises privacy issues. So that's one area that interests me, the criminal side. And the civil side, privacy is an offshoot of everything I did when I was on the bench. I normally, not normally, but I was on a regular basis faced with issues about whether I should allow discovery into something that's, quote, private, close quote. Maybe it's medical history. Maybe it's financial information. Maybe it's tax returns. But those are all things that I dealt with on the bench. And that got me interested in privacy. Uh, Another area I'm interested in and I write about is on whether or not Materials can be exchanged in discovery under confidentiality orders, whether things can be filed under seal. That's also privacy related to some degree. And that all got me into the new technologies involving security and the like. We've done programs together on cybersecurity. There are more coming up. And dealing with cybersecurity obviously is privacy. I mean, privacy and cybersecurity are really two different things in a sense. But that interests me. Uh, Privacy got me into privacy laws. Uh, We can talk about the GDPR all day. I don't talk that much about it, Frankie, because I don't do that much on cross-border transfers between the US and the EU. But, But certainly there are American companies that are impacted by GDPR. We also have privacy laws in different states. We have a sectoral approach on the federal level, and a lot of states have that still too. So those are all the different reasons why I became interested in privacy issues. And then, as I said, cybersecurity issues to them. Exactly. Excellent. I I want to talk, you touched a bit about this, and this is something that sort of fascinates me. So when people in the U.S. talk about privacy, they talk, talk about it in such broad terms that if, you know, you have to kind of flesh it out what they mean by privacy. So like you were talking about maybe in a criminal context, if someone's phone is taken, they say, okay, this is my private phone. Maybe there's data on there. This, you know, 
secret to them, right? Uh, it's not really considered legally private, right? Um, you know, there's a difference between kind of secrecy, confidentiality, privacy, um, things like that. So t- tell me, just flesh okay. those okay. concepts out <laughs> for me, because I think people get confused. Well, let's talk on the criminal it. side. Let's yeah. talk on the criminal side first. Privacy is rooted in the Fourth Amendment. And it talks about the warrant requirement and the particularity requirement. So before you can seize things, if you're law enforcement, you have to have a reason to base it and you have to know what you're looking for. More or less, that's the easiest description. The Supreme Court in case law over the last 60 years or so has developed this idea of subjective and objective expectations of privacy to decide whether the Fourth Amendment attaches to something. So that basically means, yeah, I have a cell phone. I think it's private because there's information on it that's private. But a society prepared to accept that that information is private, so the Fourth Amendment applies to it. The answer to that, generally speaking, is yes. There is a Supreme leading Supreme Court decision called Riley versus California where a guy is stopped, the government wants to look in the phone and an officer looks in the phone without a warrant, eventually winds up in a Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, look, this is private information. It's protected by the Fourth Amendment. If you want to get into it without a warrant, you have to have an exigent circumstance, a reason not to have a warrant. And it's called incident to arrest. But you get the search incident to arrest without a warrant because you're looking to avoid the destruction of property and protect the officer. So the Supreme Court said, well, you know, look, it's a cell phone. The officer's not in danger with it more than any other object other than a weapon or something like that. And as far as, excuse me, that was my phone. As far as destruction of evidence, Well, there are things called Faraday bags, and police officers can stick a phone in a Faraday bag, which is fascinating in itself because when I've got the programs now, I see companies on on the display floor offering for display and sale Faraday bags or cages, whatever you want to call them, including one big enough to drive a car into. And you stop and think about it, cars these days, last time I I had someone look at this, there are at least 21 computer systems on a car that collect, retain, and sometimes transmit data. So you want to protect everything in a vehicle, you drive it into a Faraday box, whatever you want to call it, until you get a warrant. So that's the criminal side. Uh, We could spend an hour talking about nuances of that. Uh, There's a Supreme Court decision came out three years ago called Carpenter versus United States. Um, The police were investigating a series of robberies in the Midwest around your area. And they tracked the vehicle for over 120 days. And the Supreme Court said, look, this is too much. If you track something that someone that long, you really can find out about a person's life that can trigger the Fourth Amendment. Although the Supreme Court said, well, it has to be seven days or more of tracking. So we looked to states to deal with before that. But interestingly, it was also a five to four decision. And 
I wonder whether if that case came to the Supreme Court today, you would have gotten the same ruling. But leave that one aside. That's just political musing or philosophical musing about what the Supreme Court, the new majority of the Supreme Court might do. So that's the criminal side. Uh, Civil side privacy. You go back to the things I talked about before. We have always said the tax returns are protected. Medical information is protected. Medical information is protected because of HIPAA. Tax information is protected. My recollection is there's a statute or regulation that says it's protected. But if we're talking about what's private these days, it can be for business side, trade secrets, intellectual property falls within privacy. It's not personal privacy, but those are things we protect because we care about it. It has value. And then on the civil side, I hate to say we know it when we see it, but uh, someone would come to me on the bench and say, Judge, look, here's some sensitive information about marital status or this or that. I don't need the world to see it. And unless the other side really had a good argument and say, okay, you can exchange this in discovery. You do a confidentiality order. Uh, if you want to use it later on, there are ways to deal with that. And if you want to file it for some reason, then you got to deal with the First Amendment and a right of access. Again, we don't need to go into that. But the new thing that's coming up now, I mentioned before, Debbie, other than this concept of sectoral privacy, and that's because a HIPAA of medical information and Graham bleach, if I have the statute right for financial information. These statutes that are popping up now, and California has one, Virginia has one, Colorado has one, comprehensive privacy laws, they all define information as deemed private. It can be biometric information, uh, financial information, addresses, whatever. But you look at the statutes and then you decide what can be protected. So there's a lot of approaches to privacy. I don't know that there's any one uniform way to look at it, Debbie. I agree. And it's getting more complex because all these states and even cities now are passing their own you know, statutes and regulations re- related to privacy. And then to me, I was just on a call with someone this morning and we were talking about the confusion about not only what's private, but, you know, the thing that the states are doing, well, two things that I think the state regulations on privacy are doing. One is they are creating a system where notice isn't sufficient. So they're creating these consent requirements. And then they're categorizing data sensitivity levels in some way. So some data is, has more fines than others because they consider it more sensitive. And, and then the terminology isn't the same, you know, in these statutes either. So I don't think the New York Shield Act calls sensitive data sensitive data. I think they have tiers of data, <laughs> you know, there. So it's, it, it is confusing. And I think it's only going to get more confusing. Well, let's leave aside the possibility that the feds do something on a comprehensive basis, because I don't know whether that's going to go through Congress. Although the last time I looked, there were over 100 bills pending in Congress to deal with something, including AI, facial recognition technology, and the like. There are a couple minimums I think all these statutes have in common. I mean, number one, they got a definition, whatever the definition may be. 
Number two, there's a threshold for an entity to be subject to the statute. Now, you mentioned the shield law. The shield law, is it a privacy law? Yeah, it's more cyber, privacy and cybersecurity, I suppose, is the best description of that. So, in theory, any entity that has any information on any New York resident is subject to that statute, including law firms. So if I'm, I'm sitting in New Jersey today, if I had a law firm in New Jersey, I'm admitted in New York, I'm working with a New York resident, I have information about her that's protected by that statute. I'm at least in theory subject to that statute. Now, we can argue about whether that, that really works for one resident or whatever, but the statute seems to say that pretty clearly. So number one, we have this idea of a definition, whatever it may be, and it varies. Number two, we have applicability. And that can be, for example, California, Colorado, how much business do you do there? How many residents data do you have and the like? Then there's some kind of notice that's common that we're collecting the information or we're using the information or whatever. There's the consent provision you talked about. There is a great thought we should have consent to use as opposed to opting out. So it's opt in or opt out. Most of what I've seen, it's opt out. So you can't just, you're not affirmatively saying I can use it, but you can use it. You're saying, I don't want you to use it. And then there's some enforcement mechanism and that varies all over the place too. Uh, In Illinois, Illinois has a biometric statute that allows private causes of actions without limitation. Uh, New York does not, definitely. Uh, California, Colorado have regulators to deal with things. California allows some type of private action, although the damages are limited, or the recovery is limited, as opposed to Illinois that has no cap on what can be awarded. So there are some common features. And the other one is notice when there's a breach. There's got to be some notice to someone. Uh, was it the FTC? No, not the FTC. The controller of the currency or someone just came out with a regulation a day or two ago talking about notification of breach. And behind all this is the possibility that something's going to be done at the federal level. I can just about guarantee whatever it is, it's going to be minimal because you've got to deal with a lot of interest around the country. And that's going to lead to questions about preemption whether the federal law is going to effectively say we're the only regulator in the space, no one else can do anything. There are three different kinds of preemption. We don't need to go into that today. <laughs> but um, And then we also have the prospect of other states doing things. Washington state came close to a comprehensive law. Florida came very close to a comprehensive law. Those, be- those both failed because they couldn't work out whether or not there was going to be a private cause of action or what it was going to entail. Uh, I understand they're both being reintroduced or they have been reintroduced. There are other states that are looking at this now. I just saw a notice, not a notice, a blog yesterday about Massachusetts having one that's being proposed. So the question is, if you're dealing with all this stuff, which law applies? And if you're a business entity and you're doing a multi-state business, you may be faced with uh, five states laws that apply, as well as some federal law if you're dealing in a particular area. 
Yeah, it's definitely complicated and can be very confusing. <clears throat> uh, I, I would love to switch to talk about surveillance. So okay. this is a particular topic that you and I like to talk about. <laughs> uh, but I guess the thing about surveillance is in the past, surveillance, you know, in my, my view, like in movies, surveillance was you know, someone peeping through the window with a camera or whatever. So it was sort of some something caught someone's attention and then surveillance happened. But with technology now, like we're being constantly self-surveilled. <laughs> we're being surveilled outside or, or inside, not for any particular purpose, but because we have technology that's recording, you know, like our phone is recording our steps, you know, the places that we go, the cameras outside are recording kind of our comings and goings. What, what, what is your, your thought or concern in a legal space about kind of the, the proliferation of surveillance and surveillance technologies? Well, let's think about that in two ways. Uh, number one, what do we do to ourselves? And the easiest example of that is a smartwatch or a Fitbit, whatever you want to call it, that's recording essentially it's body telemetry. So it's recording your heartbeat or blood pressure or whatever it's doing. And it may be transmitting it or it may be storing it somewhere until someone wants it. So we're kind of responsible for that because we bought a device and we hopefully know what the device can do and how it works. Then there's the cell phone. Uh, cell phones transmit location information all the time. So that's something, I suppose you can say we do it voluntarily. We don't have to walk around with a cell phone. We can leave a cell phone someplace, but I don't think anyone thinks about that much anymore. And I doubt even less people consciously do that. And then there's surveillance done broader than us. Maybe, maybe there's a drone flying overhead. Maybe there's a camera on a light pole near me or whatever. So we're being surveilled a lot of ways. Uh, some of the surveillance we control, some of it we don't. And that's, that's issue number one. So if I was litigating that, the first litigating some issue, someone's, let's say someone's arguing they're being illegally surveilled. The first thing I would want to know is exactly what surveillance are we talking about here? What did that individual agree to or not agree to? And I'd also want to know what laws are going to apply. If I'm walking on a street and I walk past a light pole and there's a camera on it, I don't know what rights I have, to be very honest with you. I suppose if that device is capturing facial recognition information, there may be issues depending on the jurisdiction you're in, whether it can be captured or not. Um, we could spend an hour just working through all that, but those are the immediate things I would think about. And putting that aside, the next issue is the difference between whether government does it or whether a private entity does it. Now, I read a law review article yesterday. It was written by uh, Paul Alm, I believe, who teaches out on the West Coast. There is a procedure under federal law where government agencies can request internet service providers to preserve information. And his argument is that that's a seizure under the Fourth Amendment because 
law enforcement is enlisting and indeed under the statute requiring information to be kept that would other, might otherwise have been disposed of. So there's something about surveillance. You know, we get cell phones get information all the time. So that's another issue, and that brings in Fourth Amendment issues and statutory issues. There's just, there's a lot there to think about, and you really need some kind of a flow chart when you're talking about surveillance. And then that, of course, brings in a lot of other laws. You were talking about peeping toms. Um, there are statutes that criminalize harassment, that criminalize hate speech, you know, threats on the internet or threats through social media or whatever. Not much, there is federal law and most of the case law there is on the state level because that's where a lot of those prosecutions take place. And the question is whether or not the statute is overbroad as an invading first amendment protections for freedom of speech protections and the like. That's where we see a lot of case law on that. And then the other question of course is whether the conduct that's complained of falls within a harassment statute. Uh, you see this come up a lot in domestic relations issues, if not domestic relations issues, again, issues where children are being surveilled and the like. But again, we have to start back with that. Number one, we look to see what's being done. Number, number two, we look to see whether there's a statute that fits it. And then after that, then you get worry about whether there's going to be a prosecution or the like. Also comes up a lot in divorce proceedings and the like, or harassment proceedings involving, I was dating someone, I'm not dating anyone anymore, but now I'm harassing her, allegedly. That Those are other things where you see all these issues pop up in surveillance. And those raise a lot of problems. Yeah. What, what other issues... Uh, talking about the future now, what other issues can you foresee? You're, you're very good at seeing, if you hear something or see something, you're very good at thinking, okay, this is what the implication of this could be in the future. So what thing right now is concerning you that's on the horizon related to privacy? Well, the immediate thing that always concerns me is social media. It's not new. Obviously, it's not a new technology. It's been around, but it's getting incredibly intrusive. Um, Section 230 of the Stored Communication of the, the Communications Decency Act of the Stored Communications Act precludes liability from social media providers for various things. And that was done to make social media grow back in the 1980s or the 90s. We're past the stage of growth. These are giant businesses now. And that invariably leads to arguments about whether or not those should be regulated. I mean, I kind of think no, just because I don't know what the regulation is going to look like and what it's going to resolve. But there is so much out on social media now. You can call it hate speech. You can call it right wing, left wing, whatever. I don't know what we're going to do with that, but I expect what we're going to see in the next few years, attempts at the federal level to reform 230. Some states have already passed laws, to me, that are of dubious constitutionality, attempting to regulate social media, but we'll leave that again aside for another day. There are lawsuits popping up all the time 
by individuals who are saying some social media provider took down my content or blocked me or this or that. And the first big hurdle for them, for those plaintiffs, is there's no state action here. So you can't rely on any constitutional principles unless you can somehow argue that that provider is engaged in state action or assisting in state action. That leads you to other statutory bases to sue, state or federal. And then you've got this preemption question. So social media concerns me as a general proposition uh, and its growth and where we're going to go with it. And of course, that the legal issues with that, they're, look, they're criminal and civil issues all the time that pop up involving social media use. That's number one. Number two, uh, interesting, I did a program yesterday and we just talked about this, intangible assets. Uh, we're going to see the growth of more intangible assets and not the piece of art that really consists of electrons that sells for X million dollars. Just a lot of things that we have, we haven't seen much case law on this yet. For example, uh, when I die, uh, social media content, is that mine? Does it go to the provider? If it is mine and I die, can it be passed on to my son? Can my son have access to it? What happens if my son doesn't have the key for me to get into cryptocurrency, something different we're going to see more in, in the future? <clears throat> What's the liability of a cryptocurrency provider, whatever you want to call it, if I'm the one who has the only key to it because it's blockchain technology, I die and my state doesn't have access to it. I, I think we're going to see a lot of issues involving technology and new technologies and involving access. The same thing in the area of artificial intelligence. We're going, we've seen a lot going on with artificial intelligence lately. Um, the program you and I are doing in January for a long line, are going to be talking about discovery of AI, admissibility of AI. Whenever there's a new technology, we're going to have to fit it into something that exists already as a construct. And just to remind everybody, you know, the constitutions from the 1780s, subject to the 1865 Civil Rights Amendments, and we have to take all these new technologies and figure out how they fit into something that was never anticipated back in the 1780s yeah. when we wrote the Bill of Rights. <laughs> so, there, well, you know, that's, that's where we are. Yeah, that's all true. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, I want to talk about uh, data retention. So data retention, and this, this comes up in e-discovery cases, probably kind of pre, uh, you know, a complaint. It is how much data you have, how much you keep, and then it creates privacy issues because... If you have data that you're retaining longer than you need it, it creates more risk for organizations. So I feel like that data, you know, I feel like that data retention question needs to be addressed in all those areas. We need to we need to separate what we're talking about now. So an organization collects data. It collects data, it stores data, it uses data. When it's done with its use of data, and let's assume it's not in the market of selling data or whatever, at some point in theory, there's no need for the data anymore. 
all that data should presumably be put in a records retention policy. And we know a records retention policy is a euphemism for a records destruction policy. So number one, there may be policies in effect that talk about getting rid of data at a certain period of time. I hope there would be, because the longer you keep data the, these days, the, longer you, the, the more you're at risk of a data breach, either by an insider or an outsider who's trying to get your data. And data is valuable, we know that. So that's number one, records retention policies. How does retention of data fit into that? Number two, we're seeing all these statutes that are popping up now that talk about minimization. And minimization means we don't use it for anything more than we need it. So that's like, we don't, if we collect the information for sales purposes, we don't turn it over to marketing purposes so it can be used for something else or given to a different part of a company or division. That's something that can be enforced by a regulator in an action if companies are kept too long. But putting all that aside, and by the way, there are some statutes and regulations that require data to retain, be retained. For example, if you're a job applicant and your subject, your company that you're applying to is subject to the EEOC, you have obligations to keep employment data for a certain period of time. Put all that aside. Um, preservation is a legal concept. And it often arises before litigation is commenced because you know litigation is going to commence before the complaints filed. Now, maybe I sent you a demand letter. Or maybe I uh, had a conference and we say, you know, I'm going to sue your butts off because you did something wrong. At some point in time, you reasonably anticipate litigation. And we can talk for a long time what reasonable anticipation means. Uh, if I'm a plaintiff, I presumably anticipated litigation before the complaint was filed because I had to decide to file a complaint and talk to a lawyer about it before it was filed. If you're a defendant, you might have gotten a preservation letter before the complaint was filed. And even if you didn't, when the complaint was filed and you were served with process, you had to preserve them. So number one, there's a point in time when a duty to preserve attaches. Then you have to think about what the duty extends to. Um, easiest description, anything relevant to the case. Uh, we can go into more detail about that. But if it's relevant to a case or an issue in the case, easiest thing to say, we have to preserve that. And we can talk about how wide that is. We can talk about how long we preserve but you have to keep it. And it, it, by the way, it does include information that can be subject to privacy laws. But remember, these are different concepts now. So maybe after the information's preserved, you're the plaintiff, I'm the defendant, you tell me, I want all this information. I'm, I'm filing on behalf of 10 people because um, we've, all been we've all been denied promotions because of age. So I go to you and say, look, I understand you're suing on behalf of 10 people, but that's protected information, age information, employment information, wages. I can't give it up. That doesn't mean it doesn't have to be produced. We talked about this before. It may be produced subject to a confidentiality order. If you want to use it in court, it may be sealed. That's a totally different concept there. But at some point, the litigation ends. When the litigation ends, all that information that I kept because of the lawsuit 
should have been within some type of records retention policy in the first place. And it should have gone back into the policy and maybe in the course of the litigation, maybe the litigation is two years old, maybe the type of information that's subject to a hold under the retention policy should be gotten rid of. So someone should be thinking, the organization should be saying to itself, I've got this information back. I don't have to preserve it anymore. Do I have to retain it because of my records retention policy or because of some independent regulation? And I think that's sometimes where we have this issue about minimization, Debbie, that data comes back. And unless you have some automated tool put together or some type of mechanism to check where it fits in records retention, information is kept that couldn't be gotten rid of. So I would separate preservation from retention, either because of a statute or reg or an internal policy. And the two come together when preservation obligation pulls stuff out of records retention, basically. Litigation's over, it goes back into records retention. And then you, the organization, have to think about or have a process to get rid of it if it doesn't have to be kept anymore. Right, right. So for things that let's say fall out of the scope that where where it doesn't it no longer has to be preserved, but it's kept anyway. And a lot of that is um, there were there may not have been any legal obligation for companies to delete it, so they could have kept it you know forever. Uh, but now we're seeing, especially with a lot of the data breaches the type, the, the classes of data that a lot of cyber criminals like to get is this data that's kind of laying around and people don't really care about that much because it may not be as highly protected as it may be. It may not have a high business value at that point, but it has a high business risk if that data gets breached. Well, then you have to start thinking about cybersecurity. And, and I mentioned before, privacy is one thing, cybersecurity is something else. They meet because information that's private has to be protected, and that goes to cybersecurity. Uh, all these statutes, and the case law all says you have to be reasonable in what you do. There's not that much guidance about what reasonable means. It's, we're going to be developing that. Organizations are going to come up with guidelines. We've seen those. NIST has guidelines. I saw a new set of AI guidelines that just came out and I emailed you about earlier today that an agency working with the Department of Defense came up with with AI. The only listing I know in law specifically as to cybersecurity or security measures is the New York Shield Act. And that's because the Shield Act adopted oh, cyber, cyber information. I can't remember what the initials are of the organization. But the New York legislature wrote into law the security standards that were come up with by a private organization and said, look, these are minimum things you, can, you do to protect data. And interestingly, some of those were protecting the data physically, like locking the doors, controlling access to a room where it is, or this or that. So that's something else we're going to see developing, I think, over time, Debbie. But Unless you've got an obligation to keep it and you've got a reason to keep it, I don't know why an organization could keep information anymore because it's just that much more that can be subject to a breach. 
and breaches lead to a lot of problems. Uh, there, there are obviously financial issues involved. There may be fines, there may be sanctions, and there may be loss of sales because a company, an individual consumer may say, I don't want to deal with these folks anymore. They don't protect my data. And it may hurt company reputation. So there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to think about when an organization decides to keep stuff longer than it needs it. And to me, saying, well, I don't know what we're going to use it for, but maybe in two years we'll think of a way. I, I don't, that doesn't cut it for me. <laughs> I agree. I agree with that. Uh, let, let's talk about AI a bit. So the thing that concerns me about AI and automated decision-making is that, I, I mean, I have a lot of concerns. So I'm concerned about bias in that area for obvious reasons. I'm concerned about the harm that can happen to people for which I think there may not be any adequate legal redress. Um, you know, if someone's denied, you know, let's say someone can't get into college because the algorithm said, you know, their parents, you know, don't fit some type of classification or something like that. It's like, you know, uh, it, it, it to me, it brings up also access to justice issues. So if, if someone who maybe, for example, someone who's indigent is impacted negatively by an algorithm, how do they get redress? I, I mean, I don't know. I don't I think I'm just concerned there because I know regulation is important, but I feel like we have to be more proactive in how we deal with artificial intelligence because of the harm. Well, let's separate what the government does from what the individual does. One of, well, individuals entitled to due process. And if government does something to take away a benefit or decide to confer a benefit or remove it, the government has to act rationally somehow. Now, there's a U.S. Supreme Court decision from years ago that talked about that. So we have seen some challenges, for example, to unemployment benefits, welfare benefits of different types that are challenged because an algorithm is being used and it's making some choices that are arbitrary. At least that's the allegation. Uh, some case law on that, not that much. The leading case in the country on this is Loomis. It was a decision out of the Wisconsin Supreme Court uh, Loomis was uh, being considered, I believe, for pretrial or post-conviction supervised release. And an algorithm decide he's not decided he's not a good candidate. It was challenged because some of the criteria had to do with the neighborhood he was in and his color. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court effectively punted and said, look, there may be problems here, but the results of this AI or whatever you want to call it were just one factor that a judge has to take into consideration. The judge consider all the, can consider all these issues and the judge makes a discretionary rule. Um, we have the California CCPA may address this. I know there's a provision in the statute that says the the, the information commissioner or whatever his title is now in California, who's going to be enforcing this law with the attorney general, is supposed to adopt regulations about giving access to 
the decision automated decision making and what the results were. I haven't seen the regs yet on that. I don't know that they're out there. I really haven't looked. Uh, this is going to be something that's going to be developing law. Unless we have one of these privacy statutes that somehow it fits into, Debbie. And I, uh, there's a lot to go on this. Let's say that. AI is another one of those fields I mentioned before. You talked about new things to be concerned about. AI is going to be an adventure for a while now because we have to think about circumstances where and how you do discovery. If you're challenging in litigation, civil or criminal, how it gets admitted and how transparent do you have to be or what do you need to do to have, quote, ethical AI? There are a set of standards that a European agency came out with a few years ago that I like. I usually talk about the standards I mentioned from DOD have their own ideas about what ethical standards, what ethical AI might be. Another developing area. Yeah, it's that's another be- fun thing to talk about. <laughs> I think we're coming up with more more webinar uh, CLE ideas as we speak. There's always a new technology, and there's always an interest about it. And you mentioned the metaverse before. We have a program coming up in January, I believe, on the metaverse. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see what that's going to lead to. I agree completely, completely. Um, so if it were the world, according to Ron, and we did everything that you said, what would be your wish for privacy anywhere in the world, You know, whether it be regulation, human stuff, technology? Well, I'd like the people who breach things to stop doing it. But, you know, frankly, there's a lot of money in it. Look, Billy Sutton, it was Billy Sutton said, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. Uh, there's money in data. And unfortunately, we have a lot. We have state-sponsored hackers or whatever. That's one thing I'd like to see dealt with. I don't know how that ever is going to go. Uh, on our, in these states... I'd like to see a single comprehensive privacy law. But for reasons I mentioned before, I, I honestly do not see that at the federal level. I think we're going to have, we may have some overarching things on the federal side. Maybe it, there's been a lot of talk about a uniform notice requirement, for example, for breaches or things like that. I don't think we're going to get something the equivalent of the Virginia statute, the Colorado statute, or the California laws at the federal level. I suppose the best we can hope for, Debbie, is assuming there's not any kind of uniformity in the country. Everyone agrees that there are a set of standards that are going to be deemed reasonable. So I don't have to, if I'm an entity, I don't have to do something for Colorado differently than I have to do for California or New York or New Jersey or wherever. And to be honest, as much as I preach about that, how good it would be, I don't know when and if we're going to see that agreement on what's reasonable. It's going to be a lot of litigation on this in the future involving what governments do, litigation involving what providers do, breach litigation and and collection litigation, surveillance, like you mentioned before, and uh, good for lawyers in the practice of law and for the uh, experts and whatever and consultants that the lawyers use 
and we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's a great answer. I, I agree with that for sure. Uh, I also want to want to thank you. You, you know, even though we collaborate on the New York State Bar Association technology stuff, you've made a, a great effort to reach out to me and involve me in some stuff that you're working in. And I just want to thank you because it meant it means a lot to me. And I, I enjoy chatting with you and exchanging articles and jumping on calls and doing stuff. So I really appreciate it. One of the things we as a profession need to do is to reach out to minority populations more and get more people involved. And you're a member of two minorities, not two minorities, you're female and African-American, obviously. And to the extent I can reach out to people of different backgrounds than me, we need to do it because we need to bring different backgrounds in because you have different experiences than we do. And experiences lend themselves to developing good standards. I'm glad you're doing it with me. Thank you. <laughs> this is great. I'm so honored that you're able to do this podcast. And I'm happy. It's funny that we're already planning our next year stuff. So <laughs> in the works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would love for people to stay tuned uh, for the stuff I'll be publicizing it as well some of the other things that Ron and I are working on for our next year. But uh, again, thank you so much. And this is fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Bye. 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 Deb. Goodbye.